scripture reading today is from Matthew 15, 10 through 28. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet, Jesus asked? Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. <clears throat> then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She is bothering us with all her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and worshipped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, That's true, Lord, but even the dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath the master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. Let us pray. Father God, let us turn our eyes to you. We praise you for your loving kindness, for upholding us in times of trial, and for showing us your light in times of darkness. Transform our lives that we may be a blessing to others. Thank you for your abundant blessings, for the strength you give us each day, and for the loved ones in our lives. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. We now lift Ryan to you as he brings us your word today. Surround him and his family, Amberly, Morgan, Ethan, and Reese, with your protection. Allow us to listen and take this message with us when we leave this place. We ask this, through your Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, who lives with you as one God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. Thank you, Carolyn. Good morning again. Uh, just 
out of curiosity, how many firstborn children do we have in the in the congregation today? Just ready. If you're a firstborn child, okay, pretty good representation today. Yeah. Okay. So my children have the unfortunate blessing of um, being children of two oldest children. Amberly and I are both oldest children. And so we just figure that's kind of, that's just sort of brought the vice in a little tighter on, on things. But anyways, we firstborn children are a special breed, right? And we can make a lot of jokes about all the first, firstborn stuff. And I would always tease our firstborn who we just moved to college yesterday. I'd tease her often and say, you know, well, sorry about that chore or this, that, or the other, or that parenting mistake that I made you're the firstborn child, so deal with it. You know, it's just some of that was going to come. And so we think of it as like a responsibility thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, it's, it's just like the, the firstborn children many times are the first in line to receive, whatever it may be, uh, but then also sometimes the first ones to ask to give. So you're the first one to receive. You're also the first one to give. Uh, and, you know, that's just kind of how it works in a lot of our families. Um, in the ancient Near East, uh, one of the things that my Old Testament professor Sandy Richter liked to say about their culture, uh, of, the, of the things that they were, one of the most important things was patrilineal. Just meant that the old, everything was passed down through the oldest child and from one generation to the next. That's just kind of how they did it. It's not better or worse than how we do things. And our, it's just how their culture was. So a lot of things about the stories we read in scripture just don't make immediate sense to us because we don't live in a culture that's exactly like that. But think back to... Uh, some good examples of this, we remember the Old Testament stories, and we remember when our ancestors were slaves in Egypt, and Moses was sent to Pharaoh to call for their release. And one of the things that God told Moses to say is, now listen, Moses, you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, All right? God's, these people of God are my children. They're my firstborn son. And I'm telling you, you better let my firstborn son go. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences for you. And so it's this whole idea that th this was God's treasured people and they were not called and treasured just to be, you know, all by themselves on a little island and just pretend that the rest of the world doesn't exist. But they were called to be a special people that they might be a blessing to all the world, that all the nations, that all the ethnic groups would know that there was a God who wasn't crazy, that there was at least one God out there that wouldn't ask you to do crazy things, uh, that would not benefit you and the community you lived in, but there, were God, there was a God who loved you enough that he would offer his very life through a community to anybody. Didn't matter where you were from or where you were born, and that was, that was one of the big messages, but Israel, God's people, was supposed to carry that out. And so that was the whole deal. This is why God was so passionate about setting them free and so they could be on their mission to bring the world to know the living God. So when we look at Jesus' ministry, and he's interacting with many Jews and leaders of the Jews, and he's interacting with Gentiles as well, the Pharisees emerge as sort of the cream of the crop of God's people. You know, they were the people that we would put forward as our community leaders, they're the ones we would say, you know, we need somebody to serve on that board. And they really make a lot of important decisions about what happens in our community. Well, if the, the Pharisees are the first place you would go. You would want them on every board that you had. You would want them as your advisors. You would want them as your godparents. You would want them in anything you were doing. If you were doing a business deal, you would want to run it by them because they were just supposed to be good. I mean, they, they were smart, they were educated, and they were the ones that were entrusted with carrying the torch of God's people. 
God's law, they were supposed to carry that, uphold that, and share it with the people. Israel, God's people, the Jewish people, were the first in line to receive the Messiah's blessings. And so they knew that. They knew that so much of what the Messiah meant was that they would receive his blessings and they would be able to share those with the world. And Pharisees were the custodians of the law. They were the custodians of making sure that God's people received these blessings, these promises from God. However, there was like a breakdown in the blessing transmission. It's what, what happened when Jesus arrived on the scene many times. He found in the Pharisees is that they knew the law. They gave lip service to the law. They added things to the law that were never meant to be in the law. Uh, they gave a lot of lip service and they did a lot of the right things externally. But that many times, as in the case in this passage, their hearts were far from God. Their hearts were far away. So what was going on the inside was a mess, but what was on the outside still looked like everything was okay. Lip service with no heart service. Jesus even tells them, by your traditions that you've created, that you've added to the law of God, you're actually making the word of God void, which is a very powerful statement. You're thinking, God's word is powerful. How could you ever make it void? And I was thinking about this, you know, the, the main time that we use void is like when we void a check. And so if you are a messenger, if I'm a messenger and you gave me a check to go give to somebody and I'm taking that check and on my way, I just write void on the check. When I hand the check to the person that you sent me to, it doesn't mean that there's a problem with the funding. It doesn't mean that there's a problem with the intent. It doesn't mean that anything's wrong with what's in the bank. It's just that I messed it up. I was a messenger. I interrupted the blessing cycle. And that's what the Pharisees are doing is by, by what is going on in their hearts, they're voiding every check that God's trying to send to the world, to love the world. The Pharisees, by their dirty hearts, are blocking that. They're shutting it down. So there's a breakdown at the messenger level. God is desiring to speak to the world, and here we are as Pharisees, we're, we're shutting that down. So instead of finding the firstborn ready with good hearts, waiting to receive and share the blessings of God, they are hung up on a self-imposed traditionalism that they have decided makes them okay in God's eyes, makes them holy in God's eyes. I love what Yaroslav Pelikan says about tradition. One of the great church historians that we had in the 20th century and carrying on today, uh, but I absolutely love because he gets at the heart of what tradition is at its best. Tradition is not the problem, right? He says that tradition in the church, tradition as in, the, the, the faith that was handed down through the apostles that we receive and hand on to our children, that we transmit through the church, that tradition is the living faith of the dead. Isn't that great? It's something that the, that the dead continue to witness to. It's the thing we celebrate at All Saints. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. But he says traditionalism, when we turn it and kind of put our own little twist on everything, he said that's the dead faith of the living. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And what the Pharisees were doing was they were twisting everything and presenting the dead faith of people that were still alive. Oh no, as long as you wash your hands before you eat, it really doesn't matter what else you do with your life. Like what a crazy thing to say, but that's what they had convinced other people. It's like, well, the priests are supposed to wash their hands before they eat. We'll just make sure everyone else is expected to wash their hands. And we catch people not washing their hands before they eat. Mm, that'll make us feel good about the fact that we do that because we can read and we know we're supposed to do that. And you know, it's just a whole mess. It's like, 
Jesus saying, you know, do you really think that by washing your hands before you eat, that you're presenting yourselves holy before God? He's like, what about all the stuff that's coming out of your heart? You have all of this mess and you're trying to live with this outside in holiness. If I can manage what's going on outside of me and make it look good, then that's going to constitute holiness and God will be happy. He says, really, holiness is all about what's going on on the inside of a person that will eventually come out. And he talks about the heart, you know, that the heart is this thing inside of us, as the Proverbs says, the wellspring of life. And if the heart is good, it's a good well, then there's going to be life everywhere around. If the well is spoiled, if the well is not good, then there will be no water where there should be water and there's a breakdown in the blessings. So Jesus says, you know, you're breaking God's actual tradition, the law, by living miserably uh, from your hearts or flowing all sorts of evil. Your hearts are unclean, Pharisees, and you need a good thorough washing. And yet you think because you wash your hands before you eat that you are meeting the requirements of a holy God. Have to deal with the heart first. Uh, the heart is the wellspring of life. Also, we learn in Proverbs that the heart is something that is easily corrupted. I mean, we don't need a lot of education on how to corrupt our hearts. It happens quickly. It happens easily. Uh, and just being alive in the world, there will be much pressure. There will be many factors that will, that will seek to uh, tarnish the good things that are naturally in our hearts. And so the heart can be easily corrupted. However, uh, one of the great things that Jesus is always saying is that, you know, the heart can also be transformed. We expect, I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount or the greatest commandment that we're called to love God with all of our heart. And we're, we're called to love our neighbor, which includes all that we are. And so our heart, if we're called to love God with a heart, it makes sense that it would be able to be transformed, trained to love God and love others, to grow in capacity. Jesus says, come to me, all of you guys, all y'all who are, who are weary and you're carrying heavy burdens. If you come to me, you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus says, I, I have a humble heart. I'm gentle. I'm showing you what your heart should be doing in the world. And so uh, this is how we know that it's possible that for our hearts to change, for our hearts to be good. And so then uh, Jesus shifts gears. He's been talking to the Pharisees. And in, it's, when Matthew's telling this story, you know, Jesus takes a break here and he moves on to another region, to Tyre and Sidon. And it's like Jesus is sharing with everybody that'll listen. Okay, I'm telling you what is off with my people. I'm telling you what is off with the leadership of my people in the order of things. Uh, God's great plan to bless the world through God's people, uh, Israel, uh, the disciples, right? There's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 disciples. I'm trying to put this thing back together. Uh, ultimately, the church will become the new Israel. That's our calling. That's our vocation. We are channels of the blessing of God. And Jesus says, but just in case you missed what I'm trying to tell you, let me show you. Uh, like all good teachers, Jesus says, now it's time to show you what I mean and how simple it is to become the kind of leader and the kind of good heart that you need to be the people that God is calling us to be. So we have the text that was read for us today in Matthew 15, starting in 21. And, you know, like all the traditions that were in that culture, uh, one of those major traditions in this area was that Canaanites and the Jewish people don't associate with each other. Uh, in fact, when Joshua is called to uh, in the conquest 
to, to go out, right, and, and spread God's people physically throughout the land. The Canaanites are the people that are in the way. And so they are dealt with. They are removed from the landscape. It's kind of a miracle that there's any Canaanites left at this point in the story. So we have these people who are Canaanites who are just absolutely not, not, not only are they not God's people, but they don't have the things that they need. And in pop culture in Israel, they were referred to as dogs, you know, and all the, all the social media, all the stuff that they would have had, whatever equivalent, every, it, you, when you talked about the Canaanites, you would just talk about dogs. They're just dogs. They're, they're, it's not that they're terrible. They're just not quite fully people. That's how people would talk about Canaanites. So there's this woman who's having a problem. Her child is suffering and she breaks from the cultural norms and takes a gigantic risk to approach Jesus and ask for healing. She disregards the man-made traditions because she loves her child. And I imagine her thinking, I have heard these people talk about God loving all his children. And just in case that's true, I'm gonna go ask because I want what's best for my kid for the sake of a blessing. She needs help. So she risks breaking cultural norms for the sake of getting in on a share of the Messiah's blessing. And so she cries out. It's, it's more like a shriek. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus didn't answer her a word. It's one of the most troubling stories at first to read because it's like, well, why doesn't Jesus say anything? I mean, when she comes and shrieks, I need help, Jesus just ignores her? And obviously Jesus knows what he's doing. And I wonder if Matthew in telling the story is thinking about us. You know, and he's thinking about how many times in following Christ and in being the church that it feels like God is not listening to us. How many times does it feel like we're crying out and shrieking and no one's, no one's listening, that God is not there, that God is being silent? Psalm 22, verse 2, Psalm of David, Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. We know what that is like, to cry out at night and feel like you're alone and that no one's listening, including God. And on top of Jesus' silence in the moment, you have the disciples over here saying, uh, Jesus, this woman's driving us nuts. Can you please send her away? <laughs> She's really irritating us. You know, and the disciples, you got to love them because they do this earlier with like, hey, Jesus is kind of getting late and uh, people are hungry. Can you send them away so they can go get something to eat? You know, the restaurants are still open, but they won't be open much longer. Can you just, you know, get, can we move this on? And that's when Jesus pauses and says, why don't you guys feed them? You know, you, you're, here you are, the new Israel, you know, blessed to be a blessing. Why don't y'all feed them? And so he kind of does something similar. The disciples are asking, can you get rid of this lady? She's crazy. Can you, you know, send her away? And uh, Jesus says another thing that's kind of strange. He says, well, I, you know, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel, right? I, I came for the firstborn son and she's a Canaanite. So no deal. And the woman displays a posture of worship and she kneels before Jesus and she says for the second time, Lord, and she says, Lord, help me. And she persists. 
And Jesus says, well, it's not right to give the children's bread and give it to dogs. It's not right to give the blessings for the firstborn son. They get the double portion. It's not right to take their blessing and give it to the Canaanites. That's just not okay. That's not how it's supposed to go. Again, it sounds very rude. It sounds off, but on a practical way, it's sort of like, I mean, I was thinking about this. Let's just suppose that we have really great math teachers at Sweetwater High School. We'll pick on our math teachers for a minute. And as someone who has had children go through Sweetwater High School, I can say that's true. But so we have, we have really good math teachers in Sweetwater and uh, we hired them to teach math to our kids. Well, then all of a sudden we read in the news that Wiley, you know, over in Abilene, they're just having a real math problem. You know, their kids are going to college and they just can't do math. And so I know you longtime Sweetwater people love that. Just the idea that Wiley people may not be very good at math. But anyways, uh, so Wiley's just having the hardest time. And, and they say, Sweetwater, can't y'all send us some teachers over here? Can't you come teach us Monday through Friday, 8 to 4? And our math teachers would say, uh, we were hired to teach kids here. We can't very well be in two places at once. And that wouldn't be right for us to take our research and our methods and everything else and go share them with you Gentiles uh, because we, we're, we were hired to be here, right? It's a little tongue-in-cheek, but it's kind of the sense. And Jesus is just saying, look, it's not meant to be that way. That's not the order of things. Obviously, Jesus is taking this somewhere, and he's wanting to teach us something. So he keeps going with what seems like something harsh. And the woman responds, there, you couldn't have done this any better. You couldn't have scripted it any better. And when you're thinking about a model for faith, we couldn't have a better one. The woman's great response. She initially, she's, she's worshiping. She's bowing before Jesus. Uh, she's offering what the Pharisees won't offer. She's offering her heart. She says, here's my heart. I'm giving you my heart. You can be my Lord. I just want you to help my daughter. She grasps what the firstborn are missing. She understands the blessing, and she's ready to lay hold of it to share it because the firstborn children aren't doing their job. The Gentiles will feast on any crumbs that fall from Israel's table, is what she's saying. She has great faith. And she says, yes, Lord, but, you know, even, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. What a magnificent response. And then Jesus turns directly to her and says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Remember, we just finished a story where the disciples, oh, ye of little faith. And now he tells her, oh, wow, you have really great faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And from that moment on, her daughter was healed. This woman is our exemplar in the faith. She is our model citizen in the church. She exhibits in her prayer humility and faith. And best I can tell, there's at least three off-ramps for walking away. There's three times in this story where I would have walked away. The first one is when Jesus doesn't say anything. You know, if I ask for something and someone doesn't respond, I'm probably going to leave. I'll be frustrated. I'll be hurt. I'll leave. She asks for something. It appears no one's listening. There's no response. Instead of leaving, she asks again. And not only is Jesus silent, but the disciples are saying, please send her away. So if I was not answered and then publicly scorned, I would definitely be gone the second off-ramp. And if that wasn't enough, there's a third one, which is this crazy statement about it not being right to take Israel's double portion 
and give it to the Gentiles. And she persists. She just hangs in there and she worships and she says, yes, Lord, but even the crumbs, even the crumbs will get me where I need to go. And what more can you say? And then as I began to think about all the chances she had to jump ship, I thought about the same moments in the story where Jesus could have jumped ship on his way to bring us the blessings that only a firstborn son could bring. Because who else was Jesus but the firstborn son of God? Jesus, who cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why do you not listen to me? Why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, who was cast out of his society and murdered like a common criminal. The scorn of the cross. Jesus, the firstborn son of God, who did not keep his double blessing to himself, but he gave it away entirely for our healing. Amen. 